trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm so glad you could join me today and I'm going to try to make it worth your while. Now, let me explain what I mean by make it worth your while. I wish that meant I will be mailing out $100 bills to each and every listener. Uh, Sorry, that's not in the cards. Not today, maybe someday, but (laughs) who knows? Probably that'll be the day after we switch to some kind of currency where $100 bills are merely uh, fancy ways to wipe our noses. I don't know. Uh, Time will tell, but... I will try to make it worth your while by sharing with you information that will help shed light on the world around us, help you better appraise the situation of, you know, what's happening, what do I need to be keeping an eye on, without giving you a sense that we're doomed. Doomed, I tell you. And some days it's really hard to find that fine line (laughs) that that allows us to, uh, you know, to stay informed without without feeling discouraged. In fact, we're going to spend some time today talking about uh, the meaningless life. I just, uh, I I see so much uh, out there in, in terms of news stories and articles and personal experiences of people that I interact with where um, the, the despair that people are feeling is very, very real, especially young people. Oh my goodness. I can't tell you how, how difficult it is to, uh, to acknowledge just how uh, hard things are for kids. And this is not because they're all a bunch of snowflakes and just uh, they need to straighten up and toughen up. I don't know what the difference is, but uh, young people are having mental health issues. I mean, some of these may be related to lockdowns and other things too. You know, it's just, it feels like we're under an assault of some kind. And, and maybe this is, you know, psychic warfare, or maybe it's spiritual warfare. I tend to lean towards the explanation. This is just a continuation of a spiritual battle that's been going on for a long time. This much I do know. Nobody has it easy. I don't care how well off they are, how happy they appear. Everybody has challenges that are their own. And, and frankly, I think that if we really knew what each other's challenges were, basically, if you could sit there and write out a list, okay, these are the things that are challenging me the hardest right now. And everybody would just write out a little list. We go put it on a table, you know, a pile there and a table there in the room. And you were able to see what other people's challenges were. And we're, we're told, okay, I'll give you the opportunity. You want to switch? Anybody want to swap challenges? My bet is almost nobody would swap. Okay, maybe I would be tempted to, you know, swap, you know, challenges with the guy who is so filthy rich and so good looking that, you know, his life is just miserable. But, you know, you get, I I hope you understand what I'm saying. We're all muddling along. We're all trying to do our best. I think that means that we have a duty to help each other along the way. Not patronize, not, you know, treat each other like a a pet project. Here, come here, I'm going to fix you now. But just uh, just recognize we're, we're all doing our best to make sense of this. And there is some really amazing stuff happening. When I say amazing, I can mean that in the sense that uh, there's some very positive things. There's also some really crazy, messed up stuff that's part of the historical cycle that is playing out before us right now. So let's dive in. Let's talk about a few of the things that are going on. And, and in interest of clarity, I know you've probably heard something about the FTX cryptocurrency fiasco. Sam Bankman-Fried, you know, built investors out of billions of dollars and and coincidentally 
donated a lot of that money to, uh, well, a lot of the people in power currently. So I don't know a whole lot about the uh, fiasco. If someone pressed me, we'll explain exactly what happened. I would have a tough time doing that. However, the wonderful Paul Rosenberg actually has a great little synopsis here of the FTX heist in brief. And he says, uh, the section that I'm repeating below was published a couple of days ago in a subscription newsletter he has called Parallel Society. Now, he says, I don't like posting things that my subscribers have paid for, but in this case, it's just a small section of the letter. And he says, I think my subscribers would actually agree that it's a worthwhile service to the greater community. He also acknowledges he has the best subscribers on the planet. So, as you'll see, he says, I don't think the FTX crime, vile as it was, is worth a great deal of our time. And here's his reasoning. We are producers and should devote our energy to production. So for that reason, he says, I really haven't written about it until now, but it is a significant event. So he says, I ultimately decided it was necessary to address it in our bi-monthly what's going on section. So here's my bare bones take on the FTX event. Briefly, Paul Rosenberg says there are several aspects of this fiasco. The scheme was fairly elaborate involving a disheveled kid, now 30, and his girlfriend. The kid was from a family that's super connected within the U.S. Democratic Party. Billions of dollars were skimmed from crypto hopefuls. That money was used to pay off politicians, meaning scores of Democrats and those Republicans who voted to impeach Trump to fund COVID hysteria. They funded the now-retracted anti-ivermectin research that caused thousands of unnecessary deaths, and so on. And also a good deal of the money was laundered through the Ukraine, which has been a preferred laundering path for big players since 2014 or so. Now, this brings him to the question, so qui bono, who benefits? Well, number one, the political left benefited. The money of the crypto hopefuls in their minds, the crypto gullible, was handed directly to them. Number two, big pharma. Their profits were massively aided, television and social media as well, who fed on the turmoil. Number three, Zelensky and others in the Ukraine. Money launderers got a nice cut of the action one way or another. And number four, the institutional enemies of Bitcoin. And he says these people have a screaming need to take down stable coins, which provide a smooth interface between their monopolistic money and free money. One stable coin was taking, taken down and others felt heavy pressure. So from here, he says all sorts of possibilities present themselves, some or all of which might be true. And it starts with a question like, was this an operation to drain liquidity from the crypto realm? In other words, to ruin people who were leaving the plantation? To go to crypto instead of staying in the current monetary system? Does the disheveled kid, crazily named Bankman Freed, stay out of jail? Will he be sacrificed to protect the rest of the scanners? Will the money trail be examined? Paul says that's quite unlikely. Does a major effort to regulate crypto come out of this? Personally, I would say yes, most likely. Can the crypto market move to better stable coins? Actually, he says that's already underway, something he wrote about more than eight months ago. So bottom line is, he says it will be an interesting saga, but please be careful not to waste your time on it. Our job is to build and soap operas like this are worth no more than an occasional update. Now, why do I put so much credibility in what Paul Rosenberg is saying about this? Because, having been a longtime reader of his, I know that Paul is one of the people who was very instrumental in helping to launch 
the cryptocurrency movement, such as it, as it is. He was out there on the, on the leading edge of that wave way back when. He's very knowledgeable about this kind of stuff. And I know, I, Bill, I'm especially thinking of you, my, my listener Bill in Meridian, Idaho. I'm, I'm skeptical about, uh, you know, crypto from the sense that, okay, it's not that difference from fiat currency and that it's, it's in electrons or it's not something I can put my hands on, some tangible thing that I can actually control. And yet, I talk to people who really know their stuff about crypto, and to me, this is one of the most attractive aspects about it. It is a secure system in the sense that if you hold your own wallet, government cannot access your, your money. It is safe. But the second you go to convert that cryptocurrency into, you know, spendable money, they're waiting for you. The IRS is waiting right there at the portal. Ah, oh, thank you. We will take our cut. Okay, so let me just lay out this crazy conspiracy theory that I have here. And, and, and this is with the full knowledge I could be totally wrong. So maybe I even hope that I'm wrong about this. I think we are on the cusp of seeing a new digital currency introduced, not just in the U.S., but worldwide. And I think the reason for that currency is not the convenience or the stability that we're going to be sold on as to why we have to do this. But I think the way that we do our monetary policy right now is going to go away. The dollar is going to disappear. Something is going to take its place. It will likely be a central bank digital currency, which will mean absolute loss of financial freedom for anybody within that system. Meaning that if you in some way run afoul of those who are in charge of the system, be they politicians or just their, their lackeys, you know, pulling the, the levers there. You can very easily become an unperson. That debit card or whatever you use, you know, your smartphone, if you're paying with your smartphone, will no longer function until you are, you know, flying right. So you've straightened up and, and flying right and you're not, you know, causing waves or misbehaving in some way. I mean, look at what was done to us over the last three years and ask yourself, is it totally out of the realm of possibility that something like that could happen? See, crypto still provides, just in, in terms of the security of a peer-to-peer you know, interaction, it provides an alternative to that central bank-controlled system. So no wonder the people in power are very leery about this because you, know, you don't need banks. You don't need central banks if you can have a secure ledger back and forth between people who are doing some form of exchange i don't know it makes sense to me this is the brian hyde show this is the brian hyde show all right, welcome back to the show. A quick thank you to MonticelloCollege.org as well as LifesavingFood.com. I do appreciate their sponsorship. Thank you so much for helping to keep the wolves away from the door. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, defending our society. I think most of us understand that there are things that we really should stand up and protect. You know, children is the obvious answer. And isn't it interesting the ways in which uh, we're having to protect our children these days. You know, it seems like the, the, the focus of certain ideologies is all about, I've got to get my hands on the kids. I've got to shape their minds. And anybody who tries to stop me from doing that is a bigot or worse. 
But before you can defend the things that really need to be defended, you have to know yourself. You have to know what came before you. Got a great and very brief article here from Jay Davidson. This is from AmericanThinker.com. Before we can defend our society, we must know ourselves. He says, while studying the ancient texts, one arrives at an amazing conclusion. The ancient philosophers knew as much and perhaps more about human nature, eternity, and the way as any today. By the way, he's right. If you think of them, ah, just a bunch of great beaten toga-wearing orators out there, you know, making speeches about philosophy. Oh, no. These folks really understood human nature. You wouldn't know that, though, unless you actually take the time to read their works. He says the ancients didn't have access to technology, modern science, or Twitter. Yet through observation, honest self-examination, and rational thought, they saw deeply into mankind's soul and had the decency to record their profound insights. These are the great books. And his point is we ignore these lessons at our own peril. Philosophy doesn't require faith. It requests rational thought and intuition. It has meaning to a person after he has done the work. Now, the fact that we live in a time of great ignorance, lack of decency, and great violence suggests that mankind, or humankind rather, has abandoned the path to honesty and understanding. Men have abandoned the teachings of the past and seek to invent an alternate reality. Now, these alternate reality types are doomed to fail. Common sense has within its simple exterior great wisdom and profound thinking. Its truth has a ring, a resonance that spans all time. Now, you may ask yourself, why is that? It's because human nature doesn't change. He says, common sense resides within us all as a primordial self-preservation device. Its voice is quiet, and so it requires careful listening. That requires a calm mind. The bulk of humanity wants to live in peace. They are are only a few who seek dominion over the masses, and they're known by their avarice and evil actions. They need misdirection in order to look more powerful, much as Russia has demonstrated with its defeats in Ukraine. They need minions and governments to control the populace. They have appearance, not substance. So he says, we individually can live our lives full of honesty and decency. That is our choice, our individuality. Our honesty will stand against their lies, their falsehood, and misdirection. But his point is, it will be more than enough. We can individually decide to ignore and reject the leftist mandates by plumbing our own depths and arriving at our core principle. The fate of our souls depends on such action. And he says, most importantly, the fate of our children and grandchildren depends on our honest actions today. Again, this is Jay Davidson writing for AmericanThinker.com. Do you understand what he's saying there? It's the most revolutionary thing you and I can do right now is simply focus on becoming the best person you can be. And we're all going to define best a little bit differently. You know, for my friend Dustin, it's going to be, you know, benching 400 pounds, you know, regularly. That's, that's part of being, that's, you know, just one aspect, of course. He's, he has a lot of other good qualities, too. For some of us, it's going to be simply, I will live up to my principles. No matter the circumstances, no matter the pressure, I will be honest. I will be the person who helps and lifts the people around me. I will speak the truth, no matter what. That's a really revolutionary thing to do. And, and you know, the, the quickest way to find out, you know, well, how is it revolutionary is start doing it. You'll very easily see that it takes courage 
to stand up. It takes courage to be true, especially to yourself. But if we're content, if we're content to do this and, and to, you know, to stand up and, and brave the slings and arrows, so to speak, you will become a better person. The world will be offered one improved unit, as Albert J. Nock would put it. And that is an improvement. And I think the thing that we discount or we tend to overlook is someone who is actively in the process of becoming his or her best self cannot help but pull other people into their orbit just by the gravitational pull of example. Think about it. The times in your life where you have felt like, you know what, I can do better. I should do better. Typically, it's because someone inspired you in some way to step up and do it. I think back to a few years ago when I visited the uh, Other Side Academy in Salt Lake City. This is where people who have uh, really hit rock bottom, and I mean like have been in and out of prison multiple times, have been homeless, have been addicted, have just absolutely run their lives into the ground. The Other Side Academy offers them a chance to become a part of their school, and it's a, it's, I believe it's a 30-month course. They interview you. If you want to be a part of it, you, you go sit on the bench out in front of the Other Side Academy, and uh, someone will come and bring you in, and you will have an interview. And it's a very rigorous, difficult interview. They do not want to waste your time. They don't want to waste their time either. And if you agree, and they agree that, yep, you are a good candidate for this program, it starts right then. And it starts with you give your give give them their your cell phone. They issue you clothes. Now we're not talking like a prison uniform, but you just you're you wear it's it's essentially a school uniform, sweats and a t-shirt that denotes your status as a student. But you're not allowed to contact your family for sometimes thirty days, sometimes two months, sometimes six months. There are rules that they have to follow rigorously. They police one another. The the students do, and they police themselves. If anybody does something wrong, they're expected to own it. And you would think, oh my gosh, this just just sounds terrible. But you got to understand, the people who go to the Other Side Academy are people who are, are running out of options. They've reached a point where it's just like, I, I have nowhere to go but up from here. I'm ready to make changes. I have to make this change. And here's what I saw. They are consciously living with integrity. Now, when you're looking at somebody who's got, you know, prison tats all over their face, and it's kind of, I'll admit, it's a little bit daunting. It's like, holy cow. You can see that uh, some of them have lived very, very hard lives, or they've had extremely difficult circumstances. But there's something else that you can see, and this is what moved me. I could see the integrity. I could see the self-confidence. I could see the humility that comes from really striving in every second to be the best person that I can be, the truest person that I can be. Never out of a sense of superiority over others, but out of a sense of I will master myself. And I came away from that. I mean, I actually had lunch with them, had a tour of their facilities. They run multiple businesses. I mean, they're, they're learning life skills. It's an amazing program. But I came away from there feeling extremely humbled. Reason being, I, you know, I'm a decent guy. I'm okay. I'm, I'm not a person who goes out of his way to, to make anybody's life more difficult or more challenging. 
But I also realized, man, I'm kind of on cruise control too. I'm good enough. You know, I'm not going to attract any attention. Anybody's going to look at me and think, oh yeah, he's a good enough guy. But that's not enough. If you really want to live up to your potential, you've got to choose to live with integrity every second of every day. And when you encounter people who are doing that, especially people who've had to overcome incredible difficulties and odds to get to that point, man, it really makes you stop and think, I wonder if there's more that I should be doing. In fact, I came away with sure knowledge that there's a lot more that I should be doing and it's something I should take more seriously. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes yet, please consider doing so. Only because there is a great collection of uh, thought-provoking articles that come out each day that I publish those notes. It's not going to cost you anything. You just share with me your email address. I'll make sure you get a copy of the show notes in your inbox each day. So I want to talk about something that's going to, this is going to be kind of a sensitive subject for a few people, but I have to ask it. Do you still trust your doctor like you did before COVID? The reason I ask this is there are many of us who are struggling with trust issues based on what we've experienced. James Howard Kunstler says we need to see some sincere repentance by the medical community. I don't think he's wrong. In fact, I think he, he probably nails it uh, in, in how he puts this. The medical community has, has done some things over the last three years, and I'm speaking very generally, that, uh, that have caused a lot of people, myself included, to go, man, I'm only going to the doctor as a last resort. Here's what James Howard Kunstler says. He starts with a quote from Anton Chekhov. You must trust and believe in people or life becomes impossible. So the doctors of this country, all of Western Civ, really, owe their citizens an apology and an explanation, and even then they might not be able to save modern medicine. The doctors have dishonored and disgraced their profession. They promulgated a COVID-19 vaccination program that is now clearly killing a lot of people early in life and unnaturally. To this day, no established professional group of doctors or formal association or major journal has called for an end to the VAX program. Now, Kunstler says the hazard signal has been clear for the better part of a year. The mRNA products made by Pfizer and Moderna did not stop transmission of COVID-19 and were causing widespread harm, especially in the working age population between 25 and 64 who were forced to take the shots to keep their jobs. For the whole population, all causes, deaths, and disabilities were still rising at the end of 2022. He says the trend appeared to start with the unnatural deaths of professional athletes dropping dead on their playing fields. Then in early 2022, life insurance companies reported that the death rates of policyholders employed by companies with insurance plans were up 40%. The unprecedented numbers were confirmed in mid-2022 by the Society of Actuaries. That's the professional organization of people who actually parse the statistics that the insurance industry bases its business model on. In fact, the number of excess deaths in younger age groups had grown dramatically. 
COVID vaccination produced a 78% increase in excess deaths among the 25 to 34 age group. A 100% increase in excess deaths among the 35 to 44 age group and an 84, make that an 80% increase in excess deaths among the 45 to 54 age group. Now, these alarm signals arrived special delivery and gift-wrapped to the medical profession. And amazingly, no corresponding warning to the public came back out. The doctors continued to push the vaccines. The public health officials, many of them doctors in all the agencies under the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, withheld information about the harms that were being done and continued to run VaxUp advertisements at the same time these officials must have noticed the incoming disturbing data. As late as this new year, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky appeared on TV ads promoting mRNA boosters. In short, James Howard Kunstler says the professional class the public depends on to define reality has done everything possible to conceal and distort reality. The cable news networks and the newspapers amplified the distortions to prevent the public from understanding what was happening to them in an epic world health crisis. Social media managed backstage by government intel agencies reinforced the information blackout and their own nefarious lies. The crisis was coming not so much from the COVID-19 virus itself, which had a death rate well under 1% of those infected. The crisis came from the supposed remedy for the virus. The vaccines pushed on the uninformed and misinformed citizens. Now, he says, outside of a small circle of apostate doctors, doctors Malone, McCullough, Corey, Cole, Rish, Bhattacharya, and others, the practicing physicians of, physicians of America went blindly and cravenly along with the government's vaccination program. In fact, he says, my own primary care physician told me he was 100% confident in the vaccines when he attempted to persuade me to take the shots. Kunstler says, I declined. But he says in the next year's physical exam, he didn't even mention the vaccines. And so he asks, how about your doctors? Do you wonder what they've learned or if they've learned anything? And what are they going to do now? Pretend that none of this is happening? Continue to demonize, discredit, and punish the, new do- the few doctors who won't pretend? He says, my PC doc doubles as chief health officer of his group practice. And he says he's fired doctors and others on the staff and who refused to take the shots as his company mandated. He's dishonored his Hippocratic oath. He's in midlife with, one would assume ordinarily, many working years ahead of him. The information about vaccine deaths and disabilities is going to get worse. And his own behavior about the crisis is going to look worse, probably even to himself. And there are hundreds of doctors or hundreds of thousands of doctors like him. As of now, early 2023, there's no general movement among them to explain or apologize for their actions. So what will happen? Well, James Howard Kunstler says, I'll tell you what will happen. Medicine as we've known it is going to collapse, along with most other activities in our society. Apart from medical offenses against the public in the single instance of the COVID-19 emergency, doctors and their administrative cohorts have stealthily surrendered to a racketeering business model that had already badly damaged the practice of medicine before COVID-19 came on the scene. He says, remember, as a general principle, organisms and systems often assume their greatest size just before they go extinct or fail. That's exactly what you're seeing in the conglomerization of hospitals in the USA. 
If the idea was to remove redundancies for the sake of efficiency, then they did exactly what destroys ecosystems. Anyway, the net effect of all that hospital consolidation was just to make access to health care much more difficult for the average citizen. The only benefit was to make multimillionaires of the executives who run the hospitals. Then COVID-19 came along and they decimated their own workforces with vaccine mandates. Now many hospitals can barely function and many have had to shut down specific services. Quite a few hospitals are going bankrupt, which only feeds the predatory consolidation still ongoing. When the looming financial, banking, and insurance disorders start to bite later this year, Kunstler's prediction is that uh, hospitals will be shutting down. In the meantime, many more people will lose their lives to the disastrous side effects of the vaccines. It's already the case, to make matters worse, that the vaccine injured who seek help from the medical system are lied to, mistreated, or ignored. Now, some of these are doctors themselves and other health professionals, professionals rather, who collide with reality the hard way. So, something will emergently replace this monster we call healthcare. Maybe we'll still think of itself as medicine, but it will operate at a much smaller scale, minus a lot of the expensive and rather miraculous high-tech wizardry developed in our time, but also minus a lot of the hazardous high-tech interventions, especially pharmaceuticals, that were used as supernaturally profitable revenue streams despite the adverse blowbacks they induced. Will the doctors recover the trust of the, repu- of the public, rather? Well, he says it's going to be a slog for them. They'll have a long way to go just to recover their own honor and self-respect. Some sort of sincere and highly visible public act of apology and repentance will have to happen first. I mean, he's pretty bold, right? James Howard Kunstler just puts it out there and, hey, take it or leave it. I think about some of the doctors that I know, and I, I know some marvelous doctors, from family practitioners to plastic surgeons to dentists, These are really, really great people. And there are a couple that have expressed, you know, confided, you know, I'm not a big fan of this or I try not to recommend that. But they're very much the exception. I mean, at one point when vaccines were being pushed the hardest, I believe it was common practice, at least for some of the physicians practicing in in Utah, to get a $200 kickback for every successful vaccination dose that they were able to get patients to take. That's pretty, pretty powerful incentive. And that's really what it comes down to. I think it was John Miltimore writing for the Foundation for Economic Education who documented this and actually said, you know, this is, this is what the power of incentives can do. If you are offering perverse incentives, guess what? People will do some really twisted stuff. So I don't know where this leaves you or where it leaves me. I know where it leaves me, actually. It's, you know, I won't go to the doctor unless it is like a serious emergency. You know, like if I was having a coincidence. Oh, wait, I'm not vaccinated. So I guess it would just be a heart attack in that case. I'm trying to joke around about it a little bit, but it is a very sobering topic. And at some point, every one of us is going to have some tough decisions to make. That's something we might want to get thinking about sooner than later. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Got a couple of quick articles of interest I want to mention here, and uh, I will let you explore them at your leisure. They're found in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. One of them is about Dr. Jordan Peterson. And you don't have to be a fanboy of Dr. Jordan Peterson to understand why he enjoys such broad appeal. One of the things that I I think uh, first made me go, hey, this guy seems legit, was seeing his refusal to bend the knee to the woke. And it was over the issue of, uh, I think it was uh, Canada had passed some law saying, you know, you will call people by their preferred pronouns under some, you know, threat of penalty of law. And Jordan Peterson just came out and said, look, somebody asks me on a person-to-person basis, would you please use these pronouns when addressing me? Of course I'll do it. I respect you. I love you. I want to, you know, I don't want to sit there and, uh, and, and make your life difficult. But he says, when you mandate, you will say this, you will speak these words or whatever. He says, I have no choice but to resist. This is what kind of launched him into prominence. He's become, since then, just one of those common sense voices of, you know, people trying to get their stuff together. He'll tell you, well, if you want to get it together, you know, if you want to go change the world, start with making your bed. Start with, you know, being a decent person, getting your own life in order before you go out there and try to, you know, make everybody else do the right thing. So that appeal is something that a lot of us really appreciate. Because we see what the woke mob is doing. We see the demands just increasing, getting more shrill, more demanding. And and sadly, the woke have captured a lot of the levers of power. They have a lot of government power on their side to compel people to do what they want them to do. So the resisting is necessary, but it's not necessarily getting easier. Now you've got some members of officialdom calling for Peterson's re-education, and that's, that's what they're calling it. We got to re-educate him because he posted mean things on Twitter about uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. Now he's made it very clear. I'm not going to comply with this. In fact, he said I'm going to make everything as public as possible. Every piece of correspondence that the Ontario uh, College of Psychologists sends him, he will make it public. There, none of this is going to play out in private. And good for him. But there's a very good chance they're going to take his license away from him. And and the point of the article that I'm including is uh, that, look, he's probably too big to cancel. Jordan B. Peterson has millions of followers. He writes books. He has speaking fees. He's going to be okay. They'll never be able to silence him. But think of the message that it's sending to everybody a little further down the chain from him. It's a warning to the rest of us. You know, if we can force him to have to consider re-education or respond to calls for re-education, just imagine what we're going to do to you Mr. or Miss Nobody, who really, you know, doesn't have a big following and, you know, can't can't fall back on, you know, throngs and millions of supporters, you know, to, to support us through that troubled time. Something to think about. Also, I'm including this article from Todd Hayen from OffGuardian.org. Very interesting take on a meaningless life. And, and in particular, he's talking about how... Uh, one of the primary problems of today's culture is that many people believe they are living meaningless lives. And he goes into an essay from, who was the guy? Dr. Matthias Desmet. It's actually his book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. Three things that make human beings believe their life is ultimately on the whole meaningless. Tell me if any of these sound familiar. Materialism, instant gratification, 
and secularism or atheism. Those are kind of, uh, that kind of defines the, the culture that we live in right now, right? Materialism is how you show everybody what a success you are. Instant gratification, oh, of course. Why should I have to wait more than 30 seconds for a wonderful meal or whatever it is you want? More often, I think that instant gratification comes in. Ooh, I like that. I'm going to buy it. Click, click, you know, on my phone, and I just bought it. Then, of course, secularism, which is, in fact, the de facto state religion. I know that uh, there's a lot of talk about, well, we need to separate religion and state. But guess what? Secular humanist atheism, it is a religion. If you can ever find a copy of it, I don't know if it's still in print. Jay Lichty's book, America's State Religion, is one of the best It's one of the best tomes you'll ever read on this subject because he very clearly goes through and and shows all the tenets of what makes a religion a religion. And he does the Judeo-Christian religious uh, sets up against the secular humanist atheist set. They both have dogma. They proselytize. They have doctrines. They're, uh, you know, religions are jealous But only one of them pretends that, oh, no, no, really, I'm not religion at all, when in fact it is. And it's becoming, very quickly, a state-enforced religion. Wokeness, by the way, is a part of that. Any wonder that it's finding its way into our classrooms? Just a little something to think about. Let me skip down here to, to the conclusion. Todd Hyens says, A person living what they believe is a meaningless life will grow from that belief despair, and fear. Fertile ground for just what we see happening in the world today. And I would just add to that, despairing, fearful people are much easier to control, much easier to manipulate. That's why it's so important you and I don't allow ourselves to to give in to those counsels of despair or to allow fear to be the ruling factor in our lives. Okay, I I understand there's a lot of scary stuff going on. I feel it too. The uncertainty, it's daunting. But I've also found meaning. And just because I found it a certain way doesn't mean, well, you're going to find it exactly the same way. It's going to be different for each one of us. Part of the reason why I do what I do, part of the reason I speak up and I'm willing willing to be considered a nut job or a doomsayer or any of the other adjectives people might apply to me, I'm willing to be misunderstood because I believe there is purpose. And I believe that there is meaning. I'm guessing you probably do at some level, too, or you wouldn't be listening to this show. All right, one final article, and this is probably, if of all, these, all the articles I would recommend from today's show notes, this is the one I think you should pay the closest attention to. It's from Brandon Smith from alt-market.us. Is there a way to stop inflation without crushing the economy and killing the dollar? Now, he's got a pretty savvy take on economics. And he says, you know, one of the most dishonest games being played in economics today is the attempt by various groups, political and financial, to deflect blame for the rise of inflation. The Biden White House and Democrats desperately want to blame Russia and the war in Ukraine, even though inflation was spiking long before the war ever started. The Federal Reserve pretended for years that inflation was not a threat at all, despite numerous alternative economists warning what would happen. Now they blame supply chain disruptions instead of their own monetary policies. The GOP wants to blame Biden alone for the crisis, while ignoring the dominant role of the Fed in the economy and their unilateral power over the course of multiple presidencies. So he goes into this and he talks about, you know, the different types of inflation and, and, and the, the problem that we're facing. But 
one of the things he proposes here, and this is what's worth your examination, is what if there's an answer beyond domestic production alone to, to address inflation? He's talking about what if we build an economy focusing on quality? It's a notion that's been suggested by others, but he says it's not being promoted by any economist within the mainstream or by any political representative, which probably means it's worth a look. So he says, consider this for a moment. What if home-based producers were given incentives by states, meaning a jubilee on taxes, for instance, to manufacture high-quality, lasting goods? He explains why this model isn't currently being used right now. I mean, we have, you know, carbon control initiatives, saving the environment and so forth. But he says, do you remember when a washing machine used to last for many years? Or when a lawnmower or a chainsaw was made from quality metal parts instead of being loaded with plastic parts? Remember how grandma had the same working vacuum for decades? The point is quality used to be a thing, but the idea has been erased from modern economic theory. But do you see his point if they made more quality goods? Yes, it's probably the experience you would cry once, you buy once, cry once. It's, you pay a bit more for the quality, but think of the waste that, uh, that is saved. When your vacuum doesn't break, you know, and now for, for the fifth time in three years, you're headed off to Walmart to buy a new plastic vacuum, you know, because that's just easier. And this covers so many different aspects. The question he asks is, would the establishment allow such a system to thrive? Well, they'd certainly try to stop it from happening, and which means you know they would use any means they have available because decentralization and abundance, those are the enemies of authoritarianism. But he says, the point is there's a solution. We don't need Fed intervention. We don't need sky-high interest rates. We don't need stimulus. And, of course, we don't need government oppression or foreign interventions. We don't need globalist centralization or even a great reset. We don't need any of it, but they're trying to convince us that we do. He's suggesting we build that parallel economy, circumvent the establishment entirely, create our own economic model, still based in private property, but adapted to quality production. And we manufacture all our goods locally within our own states and our own country. That would end inflation, not just today, but for all time. Interesting thought. This is The Brian Hyde Show.